Welcome to An Eye for Business. Exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. Brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia. Hello and welcome to this episode 9 of An Eye for Business. An Eye for Business is brought to you in connection with the Entrepreneurial Mindset webinar series. And that webinar series is being run between September and December of 2022. This week we feature the work of Joanne Mosen. Joanne is an international development consultant specialising in disability inclusion and works in Australia but also in many countries in the Pacific. Joanne, thanks very much for joining us and thanks for agreeing to be a part of this series. Tell us about yourself and uh, your background, your work history, etc. I, um, I, I guess, have tended to work in education and in disability inclusion. Um, and I, I guess what's interesting is I've um, had to make some career choices and, and life changes after becoming vision impaired at age 23. Um, so I, I was on one progression in, in the health sector and um, made a change um, uh, across to disability inclusion um, and, and doing some postgraduate study in career education and, and career development to start with. Um, so I, I guess my first professional job, um, once I became vision impaired uh, at age 23, I then started working at RVIB, now Vision Australia, as an education consultant. Um, and, and so that really exposed me to the world of education, um, understanding disability discrimination and, and rights and inclusion, um, and, and then working a lot in that advocacy and negotiation and awareness raising about inclusion and transition from school to post-school um, and, and networking with universities and and loving that engagement across different universities and different courses. So really that was my first entry in, into the professional world of work. So it sounds to me like when you um, acquired your vision impairment, you embraced it with, uh, with both hands and uh, really jumped into the world of, uh, of inclusion and blindness and vision impairment. Is that fair? Look, um, I, I guess you, you, you're almost left with no choice um, that um, when I first was diagnosed, I, um, I have low vision, so I have blurred central vision, um, which made it very difficult to, to read and write um, in the way that I used to. And, and so I just wanted to learn and know all the tools and tips and techniques and resources at hand. So I learnt Braille, um, I learnt Braille music, and I learnt um, to use computers with a screen reader. Um, and, and so a lot of my life was um, having to stop the work that I was involved in, sorry, at age 23, I did make a, a bit of a life change from working in the health sector to um, learning all the tools um, at hand uh, in terms of Braille, um, video magnifier devices and computers with screen reading technology. So I, I did really immerse myself into learning that. Um, 
and and just paused from work for a while just to build those skills um, and meet people. Um, and, and what I found fascinating and wonderful for me was meeting a number of professionals who are blind or vision impaired or people in my situation making that transformation who had recently acquired a vision impairment. Um, and I learned so much just from that exposure to, to meeting with people in the workforce, in the professional workforce um, with a vision impairment um, and just seeing how they work, how they live and, and how they use technology um, to, to be active in the world of work. So that was a big learning curve for me. Um, not only the tools, but, but the engagement with people and, and um, hearing stories. So sharing like we are today is um, hopefully will, will be useful for others to, to hear um, how technology and strategies and tips and uh, positive outlook and, and good engagement um, can, can then um, keep you very engaged and, and very successful in the world of work, even with a vision impairment. Mm. And clearly you've made that the basis for uh, for your working life and now you're running your own business. Tell us about that business and how long have you been running it? Um, so for about the last eight or so years, I have worked as an independent consultant. So self-employed, um, having my own company um, just as a single employee, so I don't employ anybody else. Um, and, and work as a consultant mainly in international development, mainly as a disability inclusion advisor. Um, and I also like to do some domestic work, so some local work in Australia, um, tapping into the training and education and qualifications I have and skills and interests that I have. Um, and so I have... Um, undergraduate studies in um, just a Bachelor of Arts, but in, in politics, international development, um, comparative religion, philosophy, you know, the, the gamut of subjects that you play with in an arts degree. Um, and, and then went on to do a couple of postgraduate courses in career development, career education, and a um, graduate diploma in secondary teaching, in secondary education. Um, and also um, throughout that time, throughout my, my study journey, I have acquired a PhD in inclusive education. Um, so bringing all of that together, seeing that nothing ever goes to waste, even study pre-vision impairment. So my arts degree was pre-vision impairment. None of that ever goes to waste. So tapping into all of that that knowledge and, and skills and um Having worked in the professional world um, at RVIB originally and then working at RMIT around disability inclusion and advocacy um, and, and then working for an international NGO, so working um, on international development programs, working in that professional space, um, I then developed enough skills and networks and confidence to go out alone. It was never something I thought of when I started my career. Um, but once once you meet people, once you meet a lot of different consultants and what they do, speak to them, um, find out what skills, what qualifications, what it's like to, to 
um, work as an independent consultant versus working for a company? What are the risks and possibilities? Um, having all those conversations first and, and then um, starting with one contract and um, then networking and, and um, building those networks for mm. to hear about other opportunities. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been a journey and a wonderful journey. I'm really interested in following up on some of those points you raised, um, particularly around, firstly, why did you decide to start your own business as opposed to continuing to work for, for other people? But also, what did you consider were the risks uh, inherent in doing the type of work that you're doing uh, on your own as opposed to working for NGOs, uh, universities and other such agencies? Sure. So so to answer your first question, like what motivated me to go out alone, um, it, it wasn't a, a calculated choice at the time. It, it was like, oh, I'll give this a try. And um, I guess um, one of the benefits in, in going out alone is choice around um, engagement in the work that I'm most passionate about. So disability inclusive education and working closely and long term on programs that um, I couldn't tap into if working for an NGO um, and, and so working very closely with local communities um, on Australian aid funded mainly, um, mainly Australian aid funded programs um, and, and I guess working really closely on these programs that can run for four, five, six, seven years um, and where you can build relationships and, and work quite intensely on um, building um, processes, policies, approaches, local skills and, and seeing growth over time. And, and I guess having choice and, and um, I guess to, to capture an NDIS term, choice and control, but really having choice and control over my career and, and the type of work I do. Um, and, and I guess we all know when we work within a company, there's lots of other work that like meetings and um, lots of other things that you're doing along the side. Um, that, that sometimes get in the way of the actual work, the actual thing that drives your passion. In terms of risks, um, as a consultant and in the type of work I do, sometimes there's um, only short-term contracts, like they can be short as short as one day, a, a one-day piece of work. So I, I did one just recently um, where it was just one day of work. I that involved um, a, a remote consultation with somebody from uh, Myanmar and um, reading through a whole lot of paperwork, doing a lot of email exchange and then writing up a report. Um, and then there can be work that um, sometimes your number of days can change in your contract based on change in government. Um, and change in funding and change in funding directions. Um, so I guess one of the ways that I've been able to overcome those risks is have multiple contracts with different government donors um, where I have been really fortunate in being able to maintain a full-time workload um, by having those networks well-established, um, having different contracts with um, different programs 
so that I'm protecting myself. I'm not just dependent on one contractor um, to to keep my my income alive. I've I've got multiple sources of funding um, in which um, give me yeah I, I guess enough work to to feel safe and secure. Clearly, you have had a significant history working for universities um, and education organisations, non-government organisations and what have you. When you decided to go out on your own, how did you develop those relationships with your current um, clients and and market your, I guess, market your product? Sure. And, And I guess it wasn't as strategic as having a business plan and thinking and researching it diligently for months and months it would it just started with one contract um, and and then um, keeping in touch with with other possibilities other other networks and I, I guess I'm a little bit of a social person anyway and love talking about the sector that I work in and like connecting with other people who have a similar interest so um, if I'm um, traveling and I know that somebody else um, from another program is in country as well I'll say hey let's catch up for dinner or, or let's have a meeting and and from that um, builds those networks and and those opportunities to connect with other professionals in in the sector um, who then reach out to me and say hey Joe did you know that there's this job going or um, you know, I think you'd be great. Can I put your name forward? Or what's happened now is because um have have some really good established networks um built into different bids or support with bid writing for multi year programs, um and and so having my name at that level is is really positive because it it's um gives me a, a little bit more security again to know that um, I'm built into the bid um, so I've got some sort of I guess greater guarantee of um, f- ongoing work. What is it that you think makes you unique in terms of your experience as somebody who's blind or vision impaired that perhaps somebody else in, in your workspace wouldn't be able to bring to the table? It's a really good question. It's it's good to explore what skills and experience um, one can offer as a consultant because you you tend to be it's a competitive space and and a space that requires a high level of skill and expertise um, and and an area where I'm constantly challenging myself to make sure that I am competitive. Um, and I'm up to date and have current skills and qualifications. Um, so during the last two years of the pandemic, where international travel has been much more challenging, I've picked up a, a master's in evaluation through the University of Melbourne. Um, so I'm just on the last couple of subjects for that, just to keep my knowledge and skills and expertise current, because I guess one of my number one Um, check-in points for myself is to say without a vision impairment would I be a credible consultant with the right skills and expertise Um, because I guess what 
worries me and, and concerns me sometimes is that disability is seen as a tokenistic add-on in in some um, fields. And, and so um, I guess what I say by that is um, I guess my my concern is that sometimes um, having a disability alone makes you the expert, um, which is not always true. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, working as a consultant and being respected um, and collegial um, and, and part of a team where there's multiple co uh, consultants. So for example, I work on an education program in Kiribati, which is um, a, a small island nation in the Pacific on the positioned on the equator. It, it's one of the poorest of the Pacific islands. And um, I've worked there since 2016 on an education program. And I work amongst a team of about eight to 10 other international consultants. So one of, of the factors that is really critical to me is that I'm respected and included and valued as a consultant based on my skills, my qualifications, my expertise, my previous history and work experience in the university sector, in the international NGO sector. So I do, I guess, check in with myself to make sure that my skills and qualifications and expertise and approach match those of other consultants without a disability. That makes me feel credible and that I'm honouring the disability community and the disability sector with a high level of expertise that they would get whether I have or don't have a disability. And, and so that's really important to me. And, and sometimes you, you see volunteers working in this space who um, may or may not have a disability, but see disability as a, a tokenistic, oh, I can help them. I can help those poor people. And that charity model belittles the rights and worth of people with disability in the communities I work in. And so I'm so passionate about keeping all my skills and qualifications current. So doing this master's in evaluation over the last couple of years while we've been in the lockdown capital of, of the world here in Melbourne, um, I've thought, oh, I can honour the communities I work in by building my skills even further. And, and then when I reflect on things like the code of ethics within the, the different practitioner areas, like for code of ethics for evaluators, to be an evaluator and call yourself an evaluator, you need appropriate skills and qualifications, not just a disability. Mm. Um, and, and so to honour um, the communities and give them credible professional um, skills and, and credentials, um, I see as really critical. Over and above that, I find having a disability and working in this professional space builds the rapport and respect from the communities of people with disability. So that is an add-on value for me. Having 
a disability, having a vision impairment and sitting down in little meeting huts and little villages, meeting with people with disability or OPDs, organisations of persons with disabilities, meeting with them and having them hear me use language, understanding of the rights-based approach to disability inclusive development, having the right linkages and respect and network with government donors, with their local government programs, and being attached to a respected ongoing Australian aid program gives me the respect and the honour from the OPD community in developing countries. So that's the add-on value for me in having lived experience of disability and having the professional respect and connection with the work I do enables me to work at a really credible level where there is absolute respect and um, my ability to gather information from local communities of people with disability, identify priorities, document those, communicate those at a professional level, build in what is recommended and suggested by local communities, but also have some of those professional exchanges where I might challenge and say, hey, but do you think that's a rights-based approach? Or, hey, here's some international evidence um, using the most current research and evidence and practice that you might also want to know about that is happening in Fiji or in Tuvalu or elsewhere. Um, so sharing other good practice because I'm working across multiple programs, but I'm also keeping current with research and, and um, I, I also have an adjunct senior lecturer role at, at a university in Australia. So I'm linked in with accessing the most recent peer-reviewed research on inclusive development, on education practice, um, part of research teams within the university um, that keep my reading and research and re um, I guess research approaches very, very current and evidence-based. And, and so I can have those professional exchanges with the OPDs as well, where they go, thank you, Joe. that's really interesting. It, it's great to hear those ideas as well. Um, and then really using good international development practice to build sustainable change, to make sure the ownership, the credit happens at a local level my name is removed, my identity is removed from from any impact of change, that it's handing that ownership over to the local communities. It's not about me. It's about the local communities being kind of the, the stakeholders and, and the change agents. And, and I'm just there in the background supporting, giving ideas, communicating, formulating what they see as priorities. And, and putting that in writing um, and, and having that professional dialogue uh, to and fro with the donors, governments and the OPDs. Um, and, and so having a, a vision impairment, having a disability does build my connection and understanding of lived experience 
to to build those relationships better and stronger. So I think that's where having the disability plus the right credentials, the right education, um, being able to bring in international evidence, evidence-based um, research and the um, international development practice combined, um, it, it's, it's built a really strong and rewarding um, career as a consultant for me. So thinking about when you started, um, particularly with your involvement with international um, organisations and international communities, because of course disability is seen uh, in, in many different ways across the world, what did you find were some of the barriers to um, beginning that style of practice that were particularly related to your disability, if any? I, I, think, um, I think internationally at a global level, thinking and approaches are incredibly rights-based and, and strong. So there's a very strong voice in a rights-based approach to disability inclusion in developing countries. That comes at a global level. So through the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, through global bodies of disability inclusive practice, through the um, Australian Council for International Development, ACFID, their practice and understanding of disability inclusion, disability inclusion within the international NGOs, um, all appreciates and understands a rights-based approach. And, and probably having worked domestically as well, I, I think um, it's very well understood internationally, sometimes more than in the domestic space. Um, and and so that's an easy sell and and it's an easy sell to to then harness some of those internationally well-used phrases like nothing about us without us mm. having voices of people with disability central um, using methodologies and approaches like talk story in the Pacific where local voices are heard um, using different frameworks like Bronfen Brenner's socio-ecological model that puts people at the centre, then the community, then the norms and values of, of the wider culture. Um, so that thinking and approach is, is very consistent with, with how I operate. Um, what things look like on the ground with, with teachers, with families, with communities, with people with disability, and the lived experience of disability on the ground in a developing country is quite different. So often there's a charity model uh, worldview and um, with people striving and having a desire for their rights. Um, and, and so those communications that I have with people with disability and with government often challenge those ideologies, challenge those worldviews to say, um, here's a rights-based understanding. Some of the Asian countries that I work in, you wouldn't necessarily use the language around rights or human rights, but you might use language that resonates with the local communities and, and government and where the governments have made commitments, for example, to the sustainable development goals, to say, hey, this is how you can bring people with disability along and include them and harness all the skills and abilities that they can offer a community. 
um, and, and I think some of the the practice um, there's some some research um, around I guess a, there's research that shows that addressing education inequity for inclusion for all in education is good practice for all students so working from a an holistic a holistic approach to inclusive education looking at universal design for learning approaches and inclusive pedagogical or inclusive teaching practices that enable teachers to teach everybody well um, yields good outcomes so looking at some of those evidence-based teaching practices in the classroom captures the energy of all teachers not just those concerned with disability inclusion so starting from from that premise there's also evidence around um, investing in people with disability means that once people with disability are at school once um, they're feeling as though they're participating and succeeding it means that often it's the mother or the oldest girl in the family who is out of work or out of school to care for people with disability, that they're back at work or back at school as well. So the inclusion philosophy and approach enables um, mothers to be working, daughters to be educated, and the person with the disability to also access education and, and be employed. So it's really exciting to be part of some of those long-term journeys. And, and I then become um, a, a role model. And, and I've heard people with disability report back to, to different programs. And, and then those programs report back to me saying, hey, we love it when Joe comes in country. It's a great example of how people with disability can work. It sends a message to our government and our employers that people with disability can contribute and can work. So I become that role model as well. And I get um, people with disability excited to go, oh, wow, you know, if Joe's doing it, I can aspire to do that too. And mm. then we have some side conversations after formal meetings where they go, hey, Joe, how can I get to that next step? Um, how can I access further education? Or can you help me get into employment by the mere fact that me, like other people with a disability, become that role model for others? Accidentally, it's not the core of our work, but it is a very positive side effect of having people with disability in a whole range of diverse um, roles that we may not have been seen in before. Mm. What were some of the problems that uh, you as a, a person with disability um, encountered, particularly at the start of your uh, running your own business, um, you know, thinking about all the aspects of running your own business, and how have you overcome them? Yeah, I, I guess um, it, it's really good to ponder the all the logistics, the paperwork, the insurances, the, you know, doing BAS, um and, and tax, um, those things overwhelmed me to start with. And, and then I just got a good travel agent and a good accountant and I just pay my accountant to do my tax monthly. He does all my BAS work and 
I just pay what I have to to the government, but um, making sure that I'm compliant through a very, very good accountant who makes sure my registration is up to date with my my business registration. Um, and, and so that re- relieves me of thinking and navigating all of that paperwork that is not always accessible with a screen reader. So um, I'm very pleased and grateful to have such a wonderful accountant who's on top of everything for me. Um, and I, I guess um, I have a, a terrific travel agent who um, converts all the documentation into an accessible format for me. So I'm aware of all my different flight options and, and flight pathways and um, so, so that's been fantastic as well. I've, I've got a wonderful travel agent um, and, and he coordinates all my travel insurance and keeps everything up to date for me as well. Um, whereas I used to manage my own bookings and, and flights to start with and I thought, oh, I'll just hand that over to somebody else. So outsourcing some of the admin and, and the paperwork um, has enabled me to continue to just focus on my work. Um, which has been great. Um, I use JAWS screen reading software. I use some magnification software. I have an OrCam as well. So I I use the OrCam um, because it's an offline, very, very portable device. If I get given paperwork and I'm in a remote location with um, no other technology, I can just take a little photo and end it reads it back, reads all the the content from that paperwork back. Um, I'm comfortable and confident enough to to say, oh, can somebody else read this out for me? Or let's team teach and and go through this example together. And then I'm using my vision impairment barriers to hand over tasks to other people, often local people, that builds their skills and confidence. So maybe things I can't read out loud or can't read from a whiteboard in a classroom, um, I'm handing that over to a local teacher or a local colleague or somebody from the Ministry of Education to say, hey, let's work on this together. Um, And so instead of me feeling as though, oh, I can't do all of this if I was fully sighted, I would be able to read all this and talk through all of this. I actually feel that I'm a better development practitioner because I'm handing over ownership and exposing some level of vulnerability to say, oh, I actually can't read what's on the board. Do you think you can read that out and we work on this together? Handing over some of that vulnerability Mm. actually is really quite empowering and it's empowering to local people to say, we're not in this power and balance where I'm the outsider coming in as the expert, I actually have this wonderful codependent relationship with my local staff and local teachers where I say, you're actually better at this than me. You can see the whiteboard, you can read this out, and now let's work on this task together. So I feel as though I'm using my vision impairment barriers to build local capacity better than, and and I do watch other practitioners who take charge because they can and and lead training because they can. Um, I have a codependence that that I feel strengthens my practice and my approach. Um, So I harness it in a really positive way. 
And that is such an interesting approach um, to take, particularly given the fact that you acquired your vision impairment later in life. And, you know, many people could reasonably uh, have expected that, uh, you know, that you wouldn't be quite as confident in particularly uh, accepting the potential for vulnerability and accepting that codependent type uh, of relationship. Do you find that the same goes, for example, when you're traveling uh, in country, as it were, or when you're in international places and accessibility, of course, is uh, frequently not as uh, not as good as it is uh, in Australia. And even that, of course, can be lacking at times. Traveling about and, and getting about through local communities, do you take a similar approach or does your vision impairment not particularly impact you in that area? Um, my vision impairment impacts me quite a bit in, in terms of mobility, getting around, getting around unfamiliar places. I did try a couple of times um, to meet with local staff um, or meet with other um, consultants and, and travel together. And then I ended up having some conversations around having a sighted guide come with me um, and I now have a sighted guide built into every single contract I do. And it's such a small percentage of the overall program cost. Um, and, and I'm respected for the value that I bring to the program that every contractor has been more than happy to see that as a reasonable adjustment. And, and I guess that's one of my earlier points was I check in with myself on a regular basis to make sure I'm credible, I'm honouring local communities with credible high-level skills, qualifications and approaches and make sure, hey, if I didn't have a vision impairment, would I be employable? Would I be worthy and employed to do this work to give honour and credit to supporting the attainment of rights and inclusion for people with a disability in developing countries. And and so when I then ask for a sighted guide to be built in to my contract, um, I'm making sure that I'm giving a high quality level of work and input, whether I did or didn't have a disability. So, so my sighted guide arrangement mm. is for a volunteer to have all of their their flights, insurance, accommodation, living allowance covered at the same rate as mine. And then I, I now have a nice network of people who are interested and, and keen to take time out of their busy work schedules. Um, and I'm always keen to find somebody professional um, who understands international development sufficiently that they're coming along with a rights-based understanding of inclusion as well. Um, so that they are representing um, me and, and the work I do in a really rights-based approach too. Uh, so, so that mm. addresses or, um, you know, redirected elsewhere and then you're stuck in a, a little hotel somewhere for a couple of days before your flight's redirected or you, you land in a, an odd location where you've not been before um, or there might be a sudden change in the environment. Um, so there might be bomb checkpoints in the vehicle and, and to know that if somebody's opening the door of the car, they're not opening it for you to get out, they're opening it to check for bombs. And, and there's men opening boots and walking around with mirrors on sticks around the car. 
having somebody explain that that's happening and it's not time to get out of the car or or saying we're, we're being redirected or we're following a security vehicle to get to a certain point um, or there's a change in weather and conditions and, and we need to stay indoors because there's a cyclone coming. Um, and so even just day-to-day routine of turning up at a meeting on time and not feeling distressed by being um, unable to catch transport on my own, but having somebody with me who will drive us to the location. Thinking about developing your business idea and uh, and starting your business, if you knew then what you know now, what would you have done differently? I don't know if I would have done anything differently because it, I didn't intend at this point in my life to be a consultant. It it was, I guess, an accidental progression um, that I didn't even know consultants existed. But, you know, in in at the start of my university studies, I didn't know that such jobs would be available to me. So it, it wasn't an intentional mapping out to do what I do now. I feel that um, the way that I've emerged into my own business has been a very nice and natural way Um, and the building of networks maintaining networks having friendly and collegial engagement with people is just my natural style so opportunities have emerged over time and and so I feel as though the natural unforced way that I've mapped out where I am today has has been the most positive approach to to get to where I am now whereas I think if 10 years ago I had said I want five contracts across three different countries working in these types of programs I may not get there if I'd set a firm goal Mm. It's a very hard and competitive space to work in. And so I've gone with the flow and let opportunities emerge and then made decisions about whether to embrace or set aside those opportunities. Um, and, and so I think if you'd set a goal to get to this point, that may not happen. Um, I think the other thing... Um, about me like I think I've grown up with family as entrepreneurs Uh, I've grown up with my father as a business owner and and he runs multiple businesses and is very savvy and reflective and responsive to opportunities he continues to build his education and credentials and networks and and so has multiple businesses and and left the professional workforce to become an entrepreneur, to become a business owner um, when I was in my teenage years. So I I observed that as as a great role model. My brother has often had his own businesses as well. So being amongst a family um, of an entrepreneur mindset has has just been a natural exposure to me. Um, and, And I know of created little business opportunities even from teenage years um, 
and and so whether it's craft or whether it was babysitting, um, putting together little flyers and going door to door and, and saying, um, with, with a friend of mine who was also called Joe, we were 14 at the time and we created a business and we called it Joe and Joe Babysitting Co. And, and so had created little flyers and printed them out and um, went door to door and created a whole lot of jobs for ourselves out of that. So even from a young age, mm. I think I've been exposed to... I guess, opportunity and, and how to market oneself and um, build those networks and, and just use your natural ability and see what emerges um, over time. So mm. um, I, I think for me, it, it's just been natural and not forced. And, and that's what's made it work for me. What would your advice be to other people who are blind or vision impaired who are thinking about starting their own businesses? One of the most important things when starting up your own business is to have the right skills and passion for for the work that you're doing. And, and so once you've got those skills, the experience, the knowledge, the passion, then check in to, to make sure, hey, without a vision impairment, without a disability, do I have the right marketable skills um, against other people who don't have a disability? And then work out your edge, your approach. So it could be that the way that I've managed to weave in the fact that I have lived experience of disability in the work I do, that's helped me be a role model. It's helped me build relationships. It's helped me have a codependent approach on teaching and training and delivery but I'm also building my skills and credentials to say, oh, this other consultant without a disability, this person has a master's in evaluation or lots of other consultants in my field have PhDs or lots of other consultants are doing this other um, side training activity or presenting at conferences. Um, I'd like to develop those skills as well. So keeping current, keeping up to date and, and building your skills. Um, using strategies that others are using, but perhaps your disability also gives you a, a bit of an edge or a difference or a, an approach that helps you market yourself more. Or perhaps it doesn't. Um, either way, you're letting your skills and interests drive what you do. I think it's also really important when running your own business, um, being an entrepreneur, that you have those entrepreneurial skills. Um, so sometimes you, you see um, perhaps you, you might have a tradesperson come, come to your house um, who does one piece of work but doesn't have communication skills, doesn't have the savviness to say, hey, Here's an add-on sale opportunity. Or did you know I also have these other skills? Or um, building a, a better business model that says, hey, here's a, here's a quote. This is what I can provide for you. But here's some other things that I could also offer. Or don't forget to tell your friends. Or having the right manner and approach where whenever I have tradespeople that I have a really positive engagement with, I refer them on to other people who are looking for the same type of person. 
So making sure um, that you have that entrepreneurial mindset of generating opportunity, building relationships, marketing your business model, saying this is also what I can offer, or I'm going to throw in something for free, or here's something else that I'm going to add um, that you weren't expecting from me. So having the right manner, like always thinking about other opportunities or how meeting with customer A could refer you on to customer B and C. So seeing every connection and every opportunity as a way to keep your business alive and to build it. Well, Joanne, it's been amazing to hear about your business and uh, congratulations on uh continued career and uh, thanks very much for being a part of this program thank you so much it was great to talk with you and that's joanne mosen we've still got a few more episodes of this podcast series to go so stay with us over the next few weeks in the lead up to the final webinar in the entrepreneurial mindset series these podcasts are released in conjunction with those webinars and they are brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia and form a part of Blind Citizens Australia's An Eye to the Future project. I'm Vaughan Benison. Do take care. I'll talk to you again next week. You have been listening to An Eye for Business, exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. This is a series of programs brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia. Join us again next week.